0: Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts El John Go and Dave Bossert.
1: Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney, where we take you behind the scenes from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the multiverse of entertainment. I'm Aljon Goh, I'm a podcaster and lifelong Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and pop culturist, and you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave
2: Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Aljon, this is the restoration show of the Disney Classics. I love it. And we got a fantastic guest
1: today, don't we? We do. And waiting in the green room. Oh, wait, 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 wait. He's loose. He's loose. It's Dave Bossard. The the, (laughs) the man himself, the (laughs) award-winning author and filmmaker, is loose. He's broken free from the green room. I had him chained up there. It was crazy. But now he's, he's free and loose. And now he's able to talk all things pop culture, as well as the restoration projects he's been involved in. With Disney, it's been crazy. And I love going through yeah. the archives, you know, and, and checking out all the young, the young and very spry Dave Bossert
2: there we go thank you very much for that and, and you know something again this is this is a suggestion by um our friend susan in uh taipei one of our listeners That's susan awesome. in taipei yeah. uh taiwan and uh, she made this suggestion like a month ago i think and uh so we're following through we're doing it we we love getting uh uh messages from our listeners and suggestions for show
1: topics i love it i love it and- and uh, once again, I encourage everybody to send us those emails because we're going to answer some listener feedback here in a minute. But uh, we, we enjoy the heck out of them. And uh, another thing we enjoy, too, is getting those five-star reviews. We need those reviews. And everything helps the algorithm promote the show on every one of the podcast platforms that we're on. And we're on every one of them. So go ahead and do that as well. Now, before, before we go into the restoration topic, it's going to be a huge show. Uh, We we got to talk about this listener feedback as well as uh, some of what we've been doing over the week. So I guess it's time for this.
2: Skull Rock Podcast
3: answers your email.
2: Well, Al John, we got a lengthy email from a woman, Claudia, in London. Whoa, and uh, and she started out really saying like she loved listening to the Fraser McLean show because he was a Scotsman living in Mexico because. She is a Mexican living in London. What? Yeah. And so she, she writes, she says, I have an actual question for you. Last weekend, I went to the Wallace Collection here in London to view the Disney exhibit inspiring Walt Disney. And it was so interesting. We don't often get a chance to view Disney works like this on this side of the world. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I got tickets as soon as I heard that this collection was making its way to London and being uh, after being at the Met in New York. Now, this is that, you know, Disney and Rococo show. Yes. OK, yes. I also bought the companion book to the exhibit and in it more than once they mentioned the Disney artist working nearby in Gudge Street Uh, And would visit the Wallace collection to be inspired by the museum's objects, especially Rococo, which the Wallace collection has a lot of. They were also inspired by uh, Fragonard's Fragonard's The Swing, which hangs in in the museum. Boy, I just butcher our language, don't I? (laughs) Again, the mention uh, is that the artists working on Beauty and the Beast and other features were inspired by the proximity of the Wallace Collection And I've attached some examples uh, of this copy so that you can read it for yourself. Now, I've never heard of this. Were there really Disney artists working on Beauty and the Beast in London in the early 1990s? I am fairly good with my Disney history, especially the more recent aspects. And these comments really caught my eye and I knew nothing about it. Well, Claudia, yes, it is true, because when Beauty and the Beast first started being developed, it was uh, uh, it was being uh, done with a director uh, in London and he had a studio. There and I had his name in my head and it just flew out. Uh, But um, anyway, uh, there was a small team of uh, Disney artists that went over to London and were working there. Uh, with it, it was Richard Purdom it's come back to me it flew back into my head there you go. Um, Richard Purdom's studio in London and he was the original director and he developed Beauty and the Beast he developed a version of it and you know with all of these Disney animated features uh, they sometimes go through multiple iterations and there is sometimes change outs of directors and you know different uh, artistic leadership on these films it's just the the natural process, I think, of of doing films, and uh, and and believe me, I've been involved in so many Disney animated films, you know, in the in the late '80s and through the '90s and the early 2000s, where there were these types of big blowups of the story and things changing and people leaving and people coming and all of that kind of stuff. So the answer is yes. Um, There was a team on beauty and the beast that was working in London in the early 1990s. Uh, So there you have it. It is true. Uh, So I hope that uh, answers your question. And we really appreciate Claudia listening to us out of London, England, uh, as part of our global audience here at the Skull Rock Podcast,
1: I was so gonna do something that I should not have do. So I'm just gonna just leave it at that. I just you know. But anyway, uh, good times there, and thank you for writing. That's a that's an awesome comment. You know, the Rococo art uh, in that that style is is so decadent. You know, I I just after traveling around. You know, just uh, just in Austria and Germany and everything, seeing those castles and stuff that have it, it's just so ornate, and uh, it's really great that they had that, uh, that time there to really experience it, because I know you study it in art school and everything like that, but uh, it's really nice when you can get up close and personal with all those effects, so.
2: Yeah. Cool. And and, you know, something I have to I, I also have to say that, you know, as a Disney artist myself, uh, I, I, all of my colleagues, all of my artist colleagues that I I'd worked with over the years, we were always telling each other about different exhibits that were going on at different museums and things like that. And all of us were always going out to see those kinds of exhibits because it's inspirational to you, uh, yep. you know, especially when you're developing a style or a look on a picture. Uh, you want that kind of inspiration, and these, you know, these museums are treasure troves of just incredible artwork.
1: I love it, and 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 so you should. It's like being a musician and not going to see concerts and and reading books about songwriting and and meeting up with people. That's just part of the the artistic process. Yeah, if you will, absolutely, um, absolutely. I did get this one note on Facebook, Dave. Did you see um, a comment about? uh you know the fraser McLean show on facebook from anthony martin clark did you see that no i did not see that yeah so uh shared some pictures wonderful entertaining podcast i attach a few photos from inside the forum building during our making of roger rabbit mostly in the xerox department since that is where i worked oh what was his name again anthony martin clark on facebook Anthony Clark, so uh, there wow. you go, just in the in the in the copying department there, and he shows some awesome photos behind the scenes. and it's just like it's it's so cool. I'm right. gonna have
2: to go check that out. Yeah, please. I remember. You know that building
1: that the forum building that
2: he's uh, talking about, and he put those pictures up. Uh, that is that that used to be an old electrical parts factory in Camden Town, right? Uh, and it was a it was a block or two off of the High Street, uh, which was the main commercial street in Camden Town, awesome. and um, uh, it, it was one of those buildings. that was like brick and wood it had a lot of warmth to it it was a really
1: nice building to work in i really enjoyed it i like a probably very industrial i would think
2: you know yeah you know it was but but it had been completely refurbished you know the wood floors were were you know refinished and the brickwork was original and it just had this wonderful warmth to it with all these artists packed into these uh, big open spaces
1: Very nice. Very nice. Well, very well. um, Everybody just go ahead and hit us up on social or email. We love to answer these. We love to um, create uh, show topics with you and, and answer your questions. So please do so. We appreciate that. Now, this week, Dave, is a really busy week for me. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to watch a whole lot on the old tube. But uh, how about yourself? Were you able to catch up on some stuff?
2: Yeah, you know, I went and saw Doctor Strange, uh, which was absolutely fantastic in IMAX. Uh, I really enjoyed the movie. It it was just nonstop from beginning to end. Uh, So that was terrific. And I'm glad to see it doing very well. I also went to the Geffen Theater at the Academy Museum in Los Angeles to see a 50th anniversary uh, screening of The Godfather Part Two, mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful print. It was a, 30, a restored 35 millimeter print. It was absolutely gorgeous. And the Geffen Theater is just a wonderful venue to see movies in. Um, I also uh, was watching the Great Pottery Throwdown uh, which is an eight part uh, um, uh, sort of reality show where they bring potters together uh, in, into a competition. Uh, and that's on HBO Max. It's, it's uh, a program that's uh, filmed in England. And, you know, because Nancy does pottery and, and is a ceramicist, uh, she she was really wanting to watch that. So I, I watched it with her and I really enjoyed it. It was it was really a lot of fun. If, it, if you're interested in pottery and how pottery is made, uh, this show is filmed at an old uh, uh, I guess it would be a, a, an old uh, uh, ceramics uh, factory. Uh, in in the I think I think it's uh, up near Manchester uh, Mm. where it's filmed Uh, so that was really terrific and I I binge watched uh, the first season of Snowpiercer
1: oh wow okay
2: I don't know if you've seen that. No,
1: I haven't seen it, but it, I've oh, seen the previews for it. It is so
2: good. It well, is really that? good. It, you know, it's a dystopian type of show where, you know, uh, climate change, they were, tra- you know, scientists were trying to fix climate change and they actually worsened it and uh, the entire planet froze. Yeah. And uh, the remnants of, of civilization are on a thousand car train That is traveling around the globe continuously in order to keep, um, you know, the electricity and uh, warmth for this surviving group of uh, humans. And uh, and it's, you know, class warfare, politics, uh, deception, murder, uh, all rolled into one. I mean, it's really kind of a a really interesting concept. And I have to tell you, I really have enjoyed the first season of this show. It's it's really amazing. It's kind of like a Noah's Ark on a train, you know, where where they're trying to survive. Uh, and uh, so <laughs> that was Ark, really interesting. Noah's
1: Ark meets Speed. <laughs>
2: yeah, there you go. Noah's Ark meets Speed. Uh, so right, uh, that right. that's it for me. I was uh, you know it was a busy week as well, but I managed to squeeze in some of the stuff. And I went there to Disneyland go. to boot. What? Yeah, I went to Disneyland. It was the first time I went down to Disneyland uh, since before the pandemic. Wow. Since de- since December of 2019. So yeah. how was it? it you know, it was really good. I have to say it was the perfect day because the weather, it wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold. Mm. It was just That's right. <laughs> and it was clear skies and it was really pleasant. I met uh, some uh, some friends down there. Uh, we had uh, corn dogs uh at the little red corn dog truck uh yeah and uh and uh ate them uh at a table at the carnation restaurant outdoor patio area yes uh and just really uh had a wonderful time we were only there for a couple of hours uh but uh it was a lot of fun
1: oh i love it well congratulations that's that's great we uh we're booking our trip we're going to walt disney world in the fall with the kiddos i think Fantastic. uh, When are you coming out to Disneyland? That's a good question. Maybe, maybe out in in January, maybe. Because we'd we'd had to postpone our our summertime trip, but uh, we're hoping that maybe this, uh, this winter uh, we'll be able to go see you. But uh, Hey, that's great. What what, what have you watched? You know what? Not a whole lot. I mean, I caught up, you know, I've been, I've been trying to catch a little glimpse of Star Trek, the new strange new worlds, and I keep on getting distracted by the kids <laughs> when yeah, I do it. Yeah. So, um, I think when I'm on the road, uh, I'll definitely look into that, but so far it looks, uh, looks pretty amazing as well as a season finale Picard. And I still need to, to catch up on all my walking dead, but, um, I'll be getting there. And I think maybe when I'm out of town this week, I'll probably, I'll try to catch a movie if I can, um, because I'll be I'll be out. There's nothing else to do, so I'm going to go out and maybe watch a movie. But uh, we'll we'll figure we'll figure that out uh, the closer it gets. So awesome, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let us know what you've been streaming out there. Once again, drop us a line over social media. We'll glad we'll be glad to take your recommendations, if you will. And now it's time for Skull Rock
0: Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news.
1: Disney copyrights targeted in bill proposed by Senator Josh Howley. This would mean the company would lose its copyright to original designs of Mickey Mouse if the law is passed. Man, here we go again.
2: You know, this, this is just getting out of hand. I, I mean, honestly, I, I I really wish our politics got a little bit more centered and uh, people stopped weaponizing politics. I mean, you know, we all should be able to agree to disagree sometimes on certain things without retaliation I mean my god this is this is just this is stemming from the whole don't say gay bill down in Florida and you know putting putting proposing legislation that limits the copyright protection to 56 years uh, this is targeting Disney specifically to try and uh, roll back protection that had been granted for Mickey Mouse uh, which was essentially for 95 years um, uh, and you know now uh you know the copyright for steamboat willie was going to expire in 2024 anyway but but you know this this is just it's exasperating to see these kinds of stories because it is the weaponization of politics
1: you know what i don't uh, i i see some some of these things happen and they change the laws in order to reflect you know current um you know stakeholders with these intellectual properties but um you know it it has a rick it has a ripple effect throughout the entire industry because there's yeah. so many properties between you know these movie studios and comic books and and other works of art and, and things literature that uh, some people just um, don't understand how it's going to affect things and and also different brands you know that have been around for over a hundred years so.
2: Yeah. And it's very upsetting. I mean, your kid is screaming in the background because of this.
1: That's exactly right. Thank you for that. Dave. We were talking about that earlier and it's like, Hey, you can hear it was perfect timing. It's perfect. (laughs) I'd be screaming too. You know, Hey, you know, leave me, leave my intellectual property alone. You know, So um, another thing that is also um, happening over at Disney is being accused of stiffing some writers, Dave. It seems like once again, here we are, um, you know, with all these all these uh, different, you know, authors coming in and saying, you know, we didn't get royalties on their work. This is reprehensible,
2: I have to tell you. Uh, And I have to tell you that as a writer, uh, because, you know, a lot of these writers are not getting paid a tremendous amount. To do the work that they do, uh, and they do rely on royalty payments, uh, and a lot of those royalty payments are not a lot of money. Uh, I think that this is just another black eye for the Walt Disney Company in the way they're treating creative people, creative con- you know c- content creators out there um, uh, should not have to be chasing this stuff down, uh, and uh, you know the fact that this is is being put out into the press, that there was a full page article in the Los Angeles Times about this, you know, is completely avoidable for the company uh, if they were just decent to their content creators. And, uh, you know, again, this kind of stuff just gets, uh, you know, uh, put through the industry Uh, And people are going to start to become uh, a little bit more cautious on who they want to work for and who they want to create content for. Uh,
1: That's my feeling. Uh, according to this article, it says the royalty issue partially stems from the buying spree Disney embarked on starting in 09 2009, 2009, when it acquired Marvel Entertainment as part of its stable of properties, including all of the superheroes, Spider-Man, Marvel, uh, Iron Man, and the X-Men, for four billion. And subsequently, Disney acquired Lucasfilm and the Star Wars franchise for four billion in 2012, and all of the Fox assets in 2019 for 71.3 billion. And because of the different ways the I guess their royalty systems have paid out, had not been fully integrated, but that's kind of no excuse. Um,
2: no, it's absolutely no excuse. And they're dragging their heels on trying to fix this issue. And they're making they're making the writers chase it down. Yeah. And, and, and again, I just I just think that's wrong it, it, on a morals on a moral level. It's wrong. You know, to treat people that way. Yeah,
1: it is. Um, But hopefully as they email and and try to get in touch with people at at Disney, um, the Walt Disney Company, they're able to get their all of that squared away. You know, it may not be in a timely manner, but, you know, we know that they're growing pains. But guys, look, you know, this has been going on since 2009, guys. So let's get our stuff together uh, for these traders. Um, I am surprised and very pleasantly surprised at this. Norm Macdonald, rest in peace, shot a secret final Netflix stand-up special before he passed in this comedy first. The late actor-comedian self-shot a final hour of new stand-up to be released in the event of his death. The material's fantastic, and I hope people appreciate that he did this. Um, This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter, Dave, and I have to say, I I love Norm Macdonald. I think he's an amazing talent. I I truly miss him and I cannot wait to see this special.
2: I I think this is like unprecedented. I don't think that anyone has ever done something like this before that I'm aware of. Um, I mean, you know, there's certainly been people who have shot parts for movies and then they passed away before the movie was released or whatever, but uh, for him to do this and he shot it in his living room, uh and uh, it's a 1 hour special it's called nothing special uh norm mcdonald nothing special uh but he's he's left everybody a gift uh a- after he passed away uh, this wonderful gift that's going to be on netflix
1: it's so touching to me, yeah, it really is. It really, I, I can't wait yeah. to see this. So, this is going to be landing on Netflix on May 30th. I can't
2: wait. Yeah, his to his now. friend David Spade says it's all original, terrific material, and Spade said he cried when he watched it. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, there'll know? never be another one like Norm. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Well, Dave, it's also that time of year where some TV shows are on the chopping block, and some of them have been completely chopped, some of them have been renewed. And this seems to me like just a normal day at the office you know yeah yeah i
2: mean this is you know new shows announced renewed shows uh and shows getting canceled this is that time of year um and but you know it was kind of surprising i saw that uh the reboot of magnum pi after what four seasons and it was getting pretty good ratings it got canceled
1: i i don't understand some of these but Okay. Yeah. Sure. Whatever you say. Um, There's no doubt that uh, you know a lot of these shows. uh, Well, Blackish is ending. It's with its eighth and final season. Sure. And then it looks like uh, we've got the Goldbergs and Grey's Anatomy and all the all the uh, the Rookie and Station 19 have all been renewed. And um, you know, uh, stalwarts like Blue Bloods on CBS have been renewed as well. So there's a lot uh, a lot of stuff going on. Um,
2: yeah. And, and, you know, obviously, I mean, uh, all of this is being driven by uh, ratings. Are people watching these shows? If they're not watching the shows, they're canceling them. But there's there's also probably a lot of other uh, factors as cross currents. Uh, you know, how, how expensive are these shows to make? Uh, you know, those types of things are all coming into play because there's increased competition
1: with streaming. This is true. I mean, look at. Look at all the shows on the the WB, and I know this is this is something that you've touched on in the past with the restructuring of Warner Brothers. Um, so the the WD, uh, I'd say the WB, the CW uh, has re- canceled a lot of shows: Batwoman uh, after three seasons, Charmed after four seasons, Dynasty after five seasons. So there, um, there's a lot of cancellations going on here, and um, you know, once again. You know, what are you, what are you going to do? Right.
2: You, I, do? I mean, it is what it is, you yep. know, and uh, you know, but there could be surprises. I mean, there could be some of these shows that get uh, a new home on a streaming service. Who
1: knows? That is true. Um, what, what do you feel like is, is the future of of network television at this point is, um, is it's not going to go away anytime soon, but it seems to me like, uh, you know, content as, as the pay window opens uh, for, for more of this content and the, the need is there, um, where do you think the value is going to be in terms you know, of my, broadcast my my, f-
2: my feeling is is that the entire industry is evolving and changing rapidly. Uh, I think that we're going to see a consolidation uh, within the streamers uh, because there's so many of them. And I think there's only so much people can can support. You know, I I mean, I've seen reports where they say, you know, people are willing to pay for two or three streaming services, Um, you know, and you've got all of these other streaming services out there that are competing for people. Uh, You've got people that are, you know, signing up for a streaming service for a month, watching uh, a show they want to see and then canceling and, you know, that kind of stuff. I uh, honestly don't know what's going to happen to network television, but it has to evolve and change.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is an interesting time for the industry, for sure. I'm looking forward to seeing what they're what they're going to do because honestly, I pay for I pay for three services now, and uh, and I turn them on and off as I see fit because that's just the way it is. But, All right. Uh, um, yeah. Hey, by the way, a couple couple of just quick notes here as we wrap up. You know, um, Orville, you know, uh, we love the Orville with Seth uh, MacFarlane and all uh-huh. of his cast of characters, and it looks like uh, they have a new trailer that's out, and the new series is returning to Hulu June 22nd of 2022, and I can't wait for that to happen. So, awesome. So um, be on the lookout for new Seth MacFarlane and that, that. And then, did you hear that Hulu is going to be streaming Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza, and Austin City Limits? No. Yeah, how cool is that? Oh, that's, so that's it's fantastic. just been announced. So if you're fans of those shows, uh, I I've attended both Bonnaroo and Lollapalooza and I love Austin City Limits. I love that show.
2: I so, usually watch Austin City Limits when I'm on a plane.
1: Oh, that that's really where <laughs> I've seen
2: that show. Is it a
1: quality though? It's just a quality. <laughs> yeah. I just I love seeing highly produced awesome shows like you're there and Austin City Limits is is a very high quality show reminds me of like MTV Unplugged and all the great uh, stuff that uh, Viacom and CBS used to do with MTV so looking forward to seeing Bonnaroo Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits this year and the following year on Hulu so uh, I thought that was a cool little note uh, there as well all right, Dave, I think it's time for you to get back in that hot seat like you haven't been already. Let's bring in that great Let's guest. Let's bring in that great <laughs> guest. <laughs> in the topic of answering your email and the theme for today's podcast, Dave, we have a very special email. We do? Yes. Yes. It's our topic for today. <laughs> Do You want to read that email? <laughs> you, <have a laughs> you know, I,
2: I I actually don't have the email in front of it, in front of me, but it was from Susan in Taipei. Oh, oh, and Susan in Taipei. Susan in Taipei. And if you remember, yeah. if you remember, a few weeks ago, uh, Susan sent us a note uh, and uh, basically uh, said that uh, she had gone to a uh, live concert performance of Aladdin uh, in Taipei, and on her way home, she was wondering. Uh, you know about uh, the restoration of films and she she suggested that we do some sort of a you know film restoration show and here we are we're going to do that show now all right well
1: before we get into the meat of things I'm going to give you a little bit of a a flashback if you will from 19 uh, oh gosh what year was this I'm trying to remember but it was a I think it was 2005 perhaps Dave, but you you recall 2005 and restoring Bambi the documentary? Do you remember? Oh it, was it was a 2005? I, I, I think I, it was. you
2: know something. I I absolutely <laughs> remember restoring Bambi because you know uh, you know once the process gets going, we wind up watching you know portions of the film you know dozens and dozens of times, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. frame by
1: frame. Yeah, it's one of my absolute favorites. I know that. Uh, it is a piece of fine art, as you've mentioned time and time again on the show. But um, I have this little intro that'll that'll you know maybe jog your memory a little bit with Sir Patrick Stewart. Are you ready for this? Check this out.
0: Hello, I'm Patrick Stewart, and I'm delighted to say that I recently became a member of the Disney pantheon of voice talent by portraying Bambi's father, the Great Prince of the Forest, in the studio's upcoming release of Bambi Two. Over 60 years has passed since Bambi first charmed the world, and it continues to do so to this day. It's a timeless classic, but unfortunately, time has taken its toll on the original film elements. Thanks to the Walt Disney Company's commitment to preserving its timeless treasures for future generations, I'm happy to tell you about the remarkable, groundbreaking restoration that has taken place on Walt's masterpiece, specifically for this platinum DVD release. Working from the original monaural music tracks, Bambi has been brought into this millennium with a newly created 5.1 Disney-enhanced home theater mix. It gives a vividness and scope to this magnificent score that is unlike anything you've heard before. The end product is the most spectacular-looking and sounding presentation of Bambi ever.
2: Bambi and some of our other classic films, the actual original nitrate negatives are being stored at the Library of Congress film vaults.
1: Let me tell you how cool it is to hear Patrick Stewart just do it. He could read the ingredients from a coffee can, and it would sound absolutely amazing, right? It, <laughs> he would,
0: absolutely. Oh, yeah. check yeah. The original Monoral music tracks, Bambi has been brought into this millennium with a newly created 5.1 Disney-enhanced home theater mix.
1: And then, of course, he talks about the
3: video it as well. gives
0: vividness and scope to this magnificent score that is unlike anything you've heard before. The end product is the most spectacular-looking and sounding presentation of Bambi ever. And then there happens to be this uh, very young, astute, dapper.
2: Bambi and some of our other classic films, the actual original nitrate negatives are being stored at the Library of Congress film vaults.
1: So you, there you are, Dave, talking yeah. with Sir Patrick Stewart <laughs> about, about restoring Bambi. And you've worked on so many of the classic uh, restoration projects for Disney over time, haven't you not?
2: I, I really, yeah, I have. I was part of the uh, restoration team, if you will. Okay. And it was a very small group of uh, professionals uh, that came together on a regular basis Uh, to work on uh, the restoration of these classic animated feature films.
1: Now, this one in particular, you you know, I I did cut up a little bit of this intro because I know we're going to go in uh, super deep in regards to the process of how you restore the film and how you restore the audio. But was this process spurred by recent developments of technology or... Did someone say uh, we're working with the what was it the film the film institute as it were uh, or the Library of Congress to restore these films for uh, for the vault? I mean, w- w- how does this project start?
2: Okay, so so let me let me start by saying that uh, the you know pre 1953 55 films are generally on what's known as nitrate stock. Mm -hmm. And nitrate stock will, over time, deteriorate and eventually turn to dust. Now, nitrate, nitrate, is that the
1: same type of, like, nitrates are explosive material. It's like gunpowder. Yes, right. Right.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and by the way, in, in the early days of cinema, there were plenty of fires inside of uh, projection booths and things like that because of the, the film.
1: Highly flammable uh, with those bulbs.
2: It was very, very flammable film. And, uh, and so it was stored in uh, you know fire, fireproof vaults. Uh, in fact, there were a bunch of vaults on the Walt Disney Studio property for many, many years. Uh, but over time the the company decided to lend the uh um negatives, these nitrate negatives for films like Snow White and Pinocchio and Bambi and all those early feature films. Uh they stored them at the Library of Congress uh, uh film facility in Culpeper, uh Virginia. Right. And They didn't give them to the Library of Congress. They loaned them so they could be stored properly. Uh Right. uh And any time that they wanted to bring a negative back because they were going to do restoration. And there has been a number of restorations done on these films because as the technology improves, you can do more with your restoration and you could do a better job with the restoration and all of those things. So they would, uh, uh, retrieve a negative and it would be driven. We, we lovingly referred to it as the ice cream truck would bring, uh, the negative across country, uh, back to, uh, Burbank. And so when I was involved with the restoration team, uh, and it was, a situation where they would bring in a negative and it would go to a special facility, a contractor, you know, a vendor, and uh, they would do a high-res 4K scan of each frame. Now, one of the things people have to realize is that, you know, a negative for Snow White or Pinocchio or Bambi, the original negative is a black and white negative. And you're going to go, What? Black and white, I see that movie in color, you know? But it was shot on what's known as successive exposure film. And each frame that was photographed uh, under the camera, it it would essentially photograph three color records. There would be a filter that would spin and it would photograph a blue record, a red record and a green record. In black and white, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then from that negative, when it went to the Technicolor lab, they would actually separate out each of those records into uh, sort of what's known as a matrix film. Uh, And Uh, that matrix would then have dyes added to each one and you would have a yellow, a cyan, and a green, uh, excuse me, and a magenta uh, um, uh, color record. Now, I'm I'm simplifying this for our audience because Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too technical with everything. But once they had those color records, then they could make the color print uh, of the film. If that makes sense. Okay. Yes. So, so what we were doing when we got these negatives back was they were doing a 4k scan and all of the conversion was done digitally. So that filter process uh, of each of the black and white records was then uh, done digitally and combined to create the color frame. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we would then look at those color frames digitally, digital projection, and we would go through it at speed. We'd go through it frame by frame, and we would make notes of things that needed to be fixed. Now you say, well, what needs to be fixed? Well, you got to realize all of those films were done analog, right? So there was artwork put under a camera and it was photographed. So in that process, there's dust that gets into the frame as, as careful as you try to be, there's still dust. The cells themselves, especially in the early films, because the acetate was expensive, they would wash the cells and reuse them. And so the the process of washing a cell, washing the painted character off of a cell, introduced scratches, uh, warping. Yeah. And, those kinds of things, when they were re- reused, you would get a cell flash on a frame where it was a warped cell and it would reflect the light a little bit. So you get a little flash. Um, the scratches would show up. And so you get this kind of dancing around. And then the paint that they used on the cells themselves, Disney had a paint lab and they made their own animation paint. Uh, and uh, the paint itself was pigments being mixed with a binder and certain pigments, uh, would start to separate if you didn't keep the paint, uh, mixed properly. Or if the ink, if the painters weren't mixing the paint in their little paint pots regularly or, or continuously as they were painting, the Pigment and the binder would start to separate a little bit. And so what you would get is you would get this tonal variation within a field of color that was painted. Now, the best example of this would be found in Dumbo because you had those large elephants that were all one color, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you would get what we called a paint crawl or boiling. Uh, so, if you look carefully at an elephant in a scene, you could see that there was like this crawl or boil within the color itself. And that was because the paint, the, the uh, pigment, and the binder was starting to separate. And as the paint was being applied with a brush, right? You'd get these slight tonal variations within that field of color. Mm -hmm. And that created a boil from frame to frame uh, as the film was playing. And so these are the kinds of things that we were looking for. We were also looking for paint pops, meaning that a little area that was supposed to be one color and was one color for most of it. And then for a frame or two, it got the wrong color applied to it. And then it was back to the right color. Uh, So you'd have those kinds of things happening. And I think a lot of people may be familiar with a paint pop because they've seen it in animation before. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those are legitimate mistakes, mistakes that they for time and financial reasons may not have been able to go back and fix uh, and just decided, you know what, we're going to let it go because it it was a mistake, but you know, we, we can't fix it. Um, And that's it. But mm-hmm. with the digital technology, it's a lot easier to go in and make those kinds of fixes. And, and so you do get, you know, there, there, there does get to a place where there's a bit of a debate as to what do you fix? You know, it, you know is it art? Uh, And the way they did it is the way it should be presented or is it, you know, legit to go in and do a restoration on something? And, you know, these are the kinds of questions that come up, not just in animation restoration, but in any kind of art restoration, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think foremost in our mind when we were doing these, these restorations was you want to maintain the integrity of the original artwork, But we also, you know, had some very good debates about, you know, was it the intention to have the paint pop? No, that was a mistake. So shouldn't we fix that mistake? Mm-hmm. Right And fortunately In the early 2000s When we were doing A lot of these uh, Feature restorations uh, we, we we were fortunate That some of the artists That still worked On those films You know Tyrus Wong Was around For Bambi um, and They brought him in uh, Frank and uh, Frank and Ollie mm-hmm. uh, When we uh, Did the restorations On You know uh, Lady and the Tramp And some of the other films That those guys were involved with it it was it was great to be able to bring them in and to get their their eyes on it and you know I I'll never forget uh we screened uh Lady in the Tramp uh and uh we had Ollie Johnston I believe was in there and uh and at the end of the screening we went over to him and he, I mean, it was almost like his eyes were welling up a little bit because he, he said that's the way it was supposed to look, you know? So they were doing the best they could with the technology they had. Uh, and, uh, and so now the technology is improved. Of course we can go in there and make these films look pristine the way the artists and Walt had intended those films to be done.
1: It's a, and that's a beautiful process. I mean, I, I, I look at it not only is it beautiful at the, for the end result, but I mean, it's so labor intensive. What would you say, Dave, having worked on all these animated classics and restoring them? How long from start to finish do you think it would take to restore a masterpiece like Bambi? Day, days in matter You know, days
2: I, 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 I think we were spending at least six or seven months. I think the first one that went through the shoot, we probably spent eight months on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, you know, uh, our team coming in and reviewing stuff on a weekly or every other week basis. Right. And then meanwhile, there was a team of digital artists who were working, you know, every day you know, going over every frame of a film.
1: When you're going over all the frames of film painstakingly, you're removing the artifacts, the dust, and the different pops and things that you would see on the film. Was there that fear of, you know, maybe someone is going to have a mistake and actually damage a piece of film?
2: No, because, uh, well, first off, you're you're dealing with uh, digital. Right. So okay, after not the working not
1: working. Well, yeah. Right. OK. So
2: I, I mean, look, I, I mean, when they're when they're doing the scan of the original negative, mm-hmm. I mean, they got to know what they're doing and they've got to be handling that with care because yeah, that's it. it. That's the negative. Right. And you're working right? with
1: the top notch lab to get that done. I would think. Sure. Yeah,
2: a- absolutely. And, and, and also you have to realize that once they did that 4k scan of the original nitrate negative, they actually made a safety negative. Mm-hmm. So they have a duplicate negative mm-hmm. of that film. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, because that nitrate negative is going to be gone at some point in the future. Yeah. You know, as much as you can care for it and keep it in a climate controlled room and inspect the, the film cans and run out the film and make sure that there's no, uh, you know, degradation uh, uh, of the film, uh, which happens, you know, and they have to go in and then sort of, you know, clip out that that decaying section. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that that negative will eventually go away. But they have an exact
1: duplicate of it. Yeah, so so I, I've actually had been very close to one uh, place where they're restoring, you know film negatives. I think there's one in in like uh, Kansas City or something It's buried in the side of a mountain because of uh, <laughs> you know the, the vaults are in sides of mountains because of the the climate and temperature and humidity that you have to protect this. When you when the company receives these, the, these original negatives were they in pretty sad shape just because of time and degradation or or you know because I could I could totally see it uh, you know coming from different sources and maybe not necessarily the Library of Congress which is where it's I, you would think that it's set up well, to do these kind of things.
2: I, I mean, things. honestly, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, and I've said this before, Disney. Uh, stands out from the crowd of Hollywood studios in how it has um, uh, preserved and, and restored its film library. Uh, they've taken great care uh, with their film library. And I, I really have to commend them for that. Um, because other studios, uh, there was a period I think in the 60s where a lot of studios just threw away nitrate. Because it was they didn't want to store it they didn't think there was any value in saving the some of those pictures unless it was a real classic you know what I mean mm-hmm. so there was there was you know thousands of
1: films lost yeah not to mention studio fires right e- exactly yeah. yeah well so so you take this the painstaking process begins doing this not only do you clean up the art but the there are other things that you have to clean up. As well, and make sure that it's it's still, you know, still good. Like the soundtrack, for example. Um, how, were you involved I didn't, in- have,
2: I didn't have, I didn't really have a lot to do with the soundtrack, mm-hmm. but I will tell you that in those early films, there was recorded mono, mm-hmm. right? And so you typically on those films, you had, uh, you might have a music track, a dialogue track, and an effects track. Mm-hmm you know and and that's it and so they they developed some some digital technology that allows them to pull apart a mono track of music and that's what they were doing and i couldn't even tell you that that entire process but i know it was a painstaking process of being able to uh, create from a mono track a 5.1 stereo track mm-hmm. which again if the technology was available for them to record it in 5.1, Walt would have done
1: that. Yeah, you
2: know, it, it, I mean, just think about Fantasound for for the Fantasia film.
1: Well, that's that's a that's a great segue. You know, I know that there's a story about how when the original Fantasia was released in theaters, that they were there were scores and scores of speakers throughout. Hung in uh, in the top of the theater, and then the the you know the the bottom, and it was basically the primitive surround sound of when choruses Correct. would come in and things like this. They wanted to feel mm-hmm. immersive, as if you were sitting in the orchestra and yeah. you're surrounded by this. Um, I can only imagine. You know, it, it always goes back to intent and what is the intent of this uh, of the film and creating those five point one uh, uh, tracks. I mean, that's got to be. You know, just as painstaking, I would think, because of all the noise and different things you have to kind of filter out as a result of uh, of remastering. Yeah, you know the Well,
2: and and also you know you have to realize that like you know uh, when Fantasia was released, the original Fantasia, uh, you know, Walt and Roy went out and they they you know essentially leased theaters in major cities for three four months. To to run the film because they installed a sound system,
1: mm-hmm. in risk, you know right, and,
2: you know so so that that to me, you know look, I I think that there's plenty of people that'll come out of the woodwork whenever you tamper with something or perceive to be tampering with something uh, that's beloved. But I think that the restorations we did. Uh, we did painstakingly and did a lot of research. And there was a, there was a team of experts, you know, I, I was looking at it as as sort of an artistic, you know, the artistic supervisor, if you will, from from the art standpoint, from the actual frames, but we had film experts and music experts and sound people. And, you know, there was all of that uh, that came together to look at these films and to be very, very thoughtful Uh, with uh, what we were doing. We retrieved backgrounds from the animation research library for each of the films and shot those backgrounds and cell setups onto successive exposure film that uh, was chemically as close to what they were using at the time. Uh, And so that we were able to then develop that, that, film and look at those, uh, images in comparison to what was, what was being, you know, what had been done originally. And so, you know, there's, there's definitely a sense that I got, uh, that there are people who are, are relying on their memory out in the world who maybe saw a re-release of one of the films in in the 60s or the early 70s and and that is their memory of the film but that might not be exactly what the film really looks like if that
1: makes sense yeah you it does because i think you're speaking to you know you're trying to not only make it the piece that it was intended to be from the original filmmaker's point of view Uh, what was the message intended for the audience for them to perceive and for them to enjoy the film but then of course you have these people that are um that have these different ideas about things and some of them can be very critical i think you're you're pointing that out in terms of the reception by some of these fans of what they recall versus what is actually true and uh, there has been some of those controversies i mean we talked yeah. a little bit about the 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 color grading if you will is it the color grading color matching of the code of uh, yeah. uh, uh, captain hook but, for example but-
2: yeah and, and you know that was one of the ones that popped up because there was a, there was some chatter out on the internet of people saying what they do to the film. Well, guess what? We we actually restored the film back to what it really was. <laughs> right. What you might have remembered it being is very different, you know, and and that's the thing that people have to really understand is, is that you know, they could be sitting in their armchair you know, not involved with the process, not understanding fully the process, and not seeing some of that original artwork. Uh, and you can't you can't just look at a cell against a background. You actually have to photograph that cell and background setup. Onto the success of exposure film because the film itself actually changes what's being photographed and the artists at the Disney studios knew that and compensated for that to get what they wanted on film in the process. So so
1: in order. Yeah. Okay, go ahead.
2: Yeah, you know, I was going to say. So in in order to actually understand what the what the artwork that you could hold in your hands really looked like, you had to look at it on film. I,
1: I think that's great because, you know, so many of us will look and rely on DVDs or VHS copies, Um to reference. And it's not the actual work itself. You know, you're just fooling yourself, (laughs) you know, which is the reason why these, these type of restoration projects exist. So you get the true intention of the original film instead of something that has been kind of washed out over time. Um, So the process being as painstaking as it is, uh, can you tell me a little bit about one of the, one of the processes of rotoscoping and how you're able to to rotoscope characters and maybe kind of uh, remaster or rework that, uh, or in a restoration context.
2: Well, I I think it's it's not necessarily rotoscoping. I it's being able to adjust the uh, individual colors within a frame.
1: Okay. So, so, you know,
2: and, 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 you know, just stepping back for a second, I think what people have to understand is that, you know, the, the artwork uh, picked up saturation it picked up contrast when it was photographed onto successive exposure film. Okay. So, so the, the artist knew that. And so you would paint with slightly muted colors, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, less contrast. Knowing that you're going to pick up contrast and pick up color saturation
1: when when it's photographed. Uh huh. Okay. Well, well, that that's great. I mean, are there some misconceptions about what? Uh, well, obviously, there's some misconceptions uh, conceptions about the process that we've debunked in terms of, you know, what is real, what is authentic in terms of the original piece versus what might be put out there. In in different quality pieces of quality, are there other kinds of misconceptions about the restoring uh, restoration process? Maybe that you've seen kind of come across, going eh, that's really well, not quite what we did because Disney's a special y- entity. Yeah,
2: you know, I, I think I think what what you have to realize is, and I'll give you a couple examples of things here. Mm-hmm. So we did a restoration of uh, Steamboat Willie. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it it. it With the digital technology, you could take Steamboat Willie to the nth degree of getting rid of light flicker, Mm -hmm. getting rid of film weave, getting rid of uh, any kind of paint boil. You could get it so that it was so perfect that when you looked at it, it didn't look right Mm -hmm. because it didn't feel of the period Right. So if you look at those early black and white cartoons, there is a there is a little bit of light flicker. And that has to do with the fact that there was no uh, voltage regulators for the lights. Mm -hmm. So every time they shot a frame, the the lights might be imperceptible to the cameraman, to the camera operator, just a tad brighter, a tad lighter, a tad dimmer you know whatever right and over the course of shooting a scene that introduces that little bit of flicker that you see in those early black and white cartoons okay um the film weave that was a a byproduct of the cameras uh not being as precise as they became Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you take all of that stuff into consideration. So what we did when we, we did a restoration of steamboat Willie was we literally took it to that nth degree and it looked like a Simpsons itchy and scratchy cartoon. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Where it's like perfect. Yeah. But it's black and white. Right. (laughs) Right. And you look at it and you go, yeah, that, that doesn't feel right. So then, we started to introduce a little bit more of light flicker and a little bit of picture weave. And you get, you know, you're running tests and you get to a place where you go, that feels right to me. It becomes very subjective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but when you have a group, a a group of professionals in a room and everybody's looking at it and going, yeah, you know, that does feel right to me. And, and, you know, I go back to the example that I used earlier with the uh, large color areas of the elephants in Dumbo. We did the same thing. You could get a perfect, perfect field of color that has no boil to it whatsoever. And it doesn't feel right to you. So we introduced a little bit back into it and that gives it that handmade quality. Okay. Yeah. So these are judgment calls and they're done very thoughtfully and they're done uh, with a, a, a very smart group of people in the room discussing it. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you another example of something where I know people are like, how dare you? How did you? You should never have done that. Uh-huh. Uh, in in Bambi, uh, there's a shot of a raccoon mother coming out of the water with the fire in the background, uh-huh. the forest fire. Yes. And there's one of the baby raccoons pops. Yeah. Pops off. Okay. Uh-huh. So it's a well known, right? Yeah. We had the opportunity to fix it, and we fixed it. You know, the baby raccoon doesn't disappear. It disappears by the mother's mouth, but it appears over to the, the screen left side. Mm. And it was a mistake by the cameraman when he was shooting. That particular cell went onto the wrong la- uh, wrong pegs. Uh, and it was, it was off, okay? Yeah. So with, with that particular instance... I actually went to Roy Disney and I showed it to him. I explained to him what had happened. And I, because there were some people said we shouldn't fix that. That's always been like that. Don't fix it. But I went to Roy and I I showed it to Roy and Roy looked at me and goes, well, that was a mistake. Wasn't it? I go, yes, (laughs) this is why it was a mistake. And he says, well, if it was a mistake, We should fix it.
1: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And now
2: it was as simple as that because it was, it was an unintentional uh, mistake. Yeah. It it was a cameraman who put the cell on the wrong set of pegs when they were shooting. And that's what happened. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and so, again, there's going to be people out there going, they should never have fixed that. i crying out loud. What the hell? You know, and, uh, and and all I can say is, you know what? I'm willing to bet that if Walt was alive, he'd say, oh, we got the technology. Yeah, fix that. That was a mistake. Well, you know, it's, it's, it always it always bothered me. It always bothered me. Every time I watch that picture, it always bothered me. Well, <laughs> I think
1: that there's 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 some good points in that because it's not like you're reintroducing or you're introducing a new element into a classic film. You're simply fixing a mistake that was that was uh, uh, not able to be fixed. It's not like, it, it, and I liken this to what George Lucas does or had done, you know, because all of us have rem- you know remembrances of the original Star Wars film and the trilogy and how things have been remastered and remastered and remastered and then specialized a special editionized if you will and so while it's different i understand it's his artistic integrity it's his story to tell he ended up tinkering with the film over time and and it is what it is you know being his story but these are this is not the same i don't believe it's the same case it's simply you know, there was a mistake and it was fixed. It's not, it, it would be the same as if George Lucas had some frame of the Millennium Falcon traveling and then all of a sudden it just moves in a couple frames ahead and it just looked like a, a skip, you know, and, and he just wanted to smooth it out. Right. right. So one of the the things I was trying to get to in terms of, uh, and I'm glad you fixed it for one, because I, I had recently been watching so many Disney classics because of the kiddos. Um, I I feel like I'm I'm reliving my childhood again by watching all these over, but what what are some of the differences between uh, things that you've done before in terms of you know the restoration process versus uh, kind of like a a, a digital um, oh, I, I hate to say it's it's not a it's not a, a restoration it's a it's a digitally enhanced film. Right. I mean, cause there are things like that, that Disney has done over time. Right. I mean, is there, what, what would be the difference in the Is there a difference between the two in digital upgrades or enhancements? Um, Is that the same thing?
2: Well, I, I, well, you know, something, I think that, you know, on the classic films, we're doing a digital restoration, which is what we're trying to bring them back to a pristine state of how they would have been presented by the original filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, and and we're doing that in a very thoughtful way to still maintain, uh, the fact that those are handcrafted films. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, I think if you fast forward to uh, what, what you may be alluding to is uh, like we went into films like uh, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and we, we made changes to artwork. Mm. Uh, for IMAX presentation, especially because when you, when you were to blow up those films onto an IMAX screen, uh, some of the things that the filmmakers were like, okay with for the general release Mm. really needed to be addressed for an IMAX screen. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. gotcha. And, and so I will tell you, you know, going back and re-cleaning up uh, drawings with, you know, more detail in them uh, uh, for the IMAX presentation of the film. But, but you have to realize that the people that are doing that, that are going into those films are the filmmakers, you know, I mean, on Beauty and the Beast, you know, Don Hahn is the producer. You had, you know, Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, overseeing that work that was being done. And by the way, the directors on those films all have a wish list of things that they wish they could have done Mm. when they were making the movie. And now they're getting that second chance because we're doing an enhancement for an IMAX presentation an Mm. IMAX screen. Mm. And now they can go in and say, I always, Oh my gosh, that one scene that always bothers me every time I see it, I now I can have that fixed, Mm. you know, and, and, and you have to realize those types of things are are being sort of rated in an A, B, and C kind of situation. A, we're going to absolutely do it. B, we're going to do it if we can get to it. And C, we'll put it on the list, but there's little chance that you're going to get that one fixed. Priorities. You know what I mean? But we try. <laughs> we're going to try, right?
1: So, right. And, yeah, I, yeah. And, and yeah,
2: yeah. And so you know that that is the nature of making films because the the motto we had at Disney animation was we we uh, we never finish a film, we release the film uh, right because. Right left to our own devices as artists and filmmakers, we can tinker until doomsday. Until hell freezes over, we can continue to tinker on a film. And, you know, there has to be some voice of reason that says, the film is going out to the theaters on this day. You know? So you do your best to get everything done by then, but the film is going out, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: I happen to uh, follow Michael and Denise Okuda who happen to be Part of the um, the creative over at Paramount with Star Trek and and the entire uh, restoration and and the building of a lot of the Star Trek mythos and manuals and and tech and all that stuff. I mean, they're basically you know tech geeks and showrunners. And so the Akudas right. did the same kind of process when they were remastering and remastering and remastering all the films and the TV shows all the way from the original Star Trek all the way until you know, today uh-huh. uh, for the various platforms. And they always had that you you talk about priorities. Here's some priorities that they had and fixed. You know, there was there was a lot of uh, stage lighting that in, and that was in the way that would cast glare on the, the control panel and we fixed that and we had to do this and mm-hmm. there was a, a, a dance that they had to go back and forth with on on the original series where they had to figure out um, do we want these really Bad-looking analog buttons on there when they did close close-up shots, or did we want to digitally enhance them because that's the intent? We wanted to look in universe, but we didn't want to make it look like it was shot, you know, uh, in nineteen sixty-seven, right? So, um, so yeah, I do understand the whole priority uh, thing uh, that you are talking about in, in in the wish list of these directors and, and artists uh, for these sh- uh, movies. Um, and I guess the last bit uh, is. In this process, do you have any interesting stories of, of things that you had uncovered or your team uncovered when making these restorations? You know, uh, some of the behind-the-scenes things that you would say, like, um, yes, we understand that uh, that Captain Hook's jacket was not what people recall it color-wise. But do you have some of those anecdotes, maybe, that you could share that uh, were interesting finds in the process?
2: Well, you know, because you're going through these films frame by frame, Right, you actually. We, I mean, we we found things that were nearly unbelievable to us. Uh, there was a, there was a reflection of a door that was open in the camera room. So somebody had opened the door. The you know the camera room is dark when you're shooting, right? the The door to the camera room was open, and you we saw the reflection of it. Unbelievable in in one frame or two frames. I think it was two frames. Oh, wow. and, and, and those are the kinds of things that you want to digitally remove. You know um, the other thing that's interesting when you're shooting uh, cells, painted cells under a camera, uh, the the background goes down and then your cell levels. And with, with a down shooter, you're limited to four cells. Those go down on top of the background, and then a glass plate, what's known as a platen, comes down pneumatically uh, and presses them together. The act of pressing the acetate cells together actually creates a little anomaly that's known as Newton rings, and they're little rainbow rings. And if you have, if you've ever taken any kind of plastic acetate, several sheets of it, pressed it together, you can see the little rainbow Newton rings that mm-hmm. that will form. Uh, and so those were things that we needed to take out and we would pick up occasionally uh, in, in frames. Um you know, and I mentioned scratches. Um, you know, these guys were smoking in the camera rooms. You know, they weren't supposed to be, but everybody smoked back in those days. Sure, and you know, so, so much for dust. A, and there's ash and dust and dirt and scratches. Uh, there's cell uh, uh, flares that I talked about. There's ripples in cells. There's um, you know the Newton rings. There, there's well, I mean. Just, it's, it's, you
1: know, it's nitrocellulose and well, all of that well it's nitrocellulose uh you know acetate so i would think that's still very porous in nature so if you're smoking it'll encapsulate some of the impurities it'll probably mm-hmm. as you said if they're washing uh, cells for being reused i would think that maybe some of the pigments would even be uh, mm-hmm. would stain some of that as well and maybe affect the color
2: And and by the way, I I, I always like to tell people this, but, you know, the great uh, Warner Brothers animation director, Chuck Jones. Yeah. Everybody knows Chuck Jones, right? Uh, Absolutely. He started his animation career as a cell washer at Disney.
1: That's it amazing. One of
2: his first jobs in, in, in animation was washing
1: cells. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> which I, I, I I I always thought was really pretty fantastic. You know, to me, that is new information. I had no idea that cells were being reused because of it, it, the cost involved in getting those cells. That's amazing. Well, to me.
2: not not only the cost, but also during the war years, oh. uh it was a necessity. You know, because yeah. of rationing and everything.
1: That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Well, I, I think that was a pretty deep dive and a great companion to anybody um, that is uh, looking up some of these Disney restoration or film restoration projects. And uh, I, I'm just glad that all of that uh, footage, those miles of footage are in the Disney vault, Dave.
2: Yeah, and, and you know something, the the one thing I do want people to understand is that whenever they have an opportunity to go see a restored film, not, not just Disney animation, but I'm talking about, you know, I, I often go to, uh, see a screening of a restored film like Casablanca or, uh, The African Queen or some of those classic films, they've done some just absolutely beautiful restorations. And you're seeing these films in a theater on a big screen. It's such a great experience because you're watching these films the way they would have been released in the day you know, and, and probably even better because they've been digitally restored. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to see uh, the, the 50th anniversary of the Godfather uh, nice. and, and uh, a restored print of that. And I really jump at the chance to see some of these films because, you know, a lot of them you may have only seen on television uh, and, you know, Seeing a film, I remember I watched Casablanca numerous times on VHS. Uh, and then I got a chance to see a a, you know, a, re- a restored print screened at the Chinese theater, the man's Chinese theater in Hollywood. And it, it, it was as if I was seeing the film for the first time yeah. because you're seeing so much detail and things on the big screen that get lost when you watch it on a smaller screen.
1: I love it. That's great. Definitely be sure to check out some of those, uh, those re, uh, I guess, restored films when you can, uh, like Dave does. It's, uh, it is pretty cool. And, uh, once again, I encourage everybody to send us those emails for show topics coming to you at, uh, Dave at Skullrock dot com or Al John at Skullrock dot com. Thanks for the chat, Dave.
2: Hey, it was my pleasure. And I really appreciate you having me on the show.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good segment, Dave.
0: Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney.
1: Oh, yeah, Dave. Thank you so much for that awesome conversation.
2: I got to say that it's always fun uh, to talk about some of that stuff. Uh, some of these topics really flood back a lot of great memories, you know, and, you know, as I mentioned throughout the, the, our discussion, uh, you know, it was a team effort. There was a lot of great people as part of that uh, restoration team. And uh, I really look back fondly uh, on the camaraderie and, uh, you know, working with those folks uh, doing, doing those projects.
1: That's awesome. Like I said, I I feel like we could do so much and we'll we'll probably revisit this topic as well. Um, But uh, I look forward to delving more into the filmmaking side of things with you, Dave, and and how these things are, are restored. And of course, a lot of these things right now. Living on that Disney Plus. So if you're living that Disney Plus life, like I'm sure you are listening to this show, uh, go back and revisit some of these uh, Disney classics that they've worked in restoring with his team and uh, looking forward to that. And here we are for yet another show in the can. And don't forget, if you love pop culture, Disney, animation, film, and TV, you know where to find it. Subscribe to this show on your favorite podcatcher. And then give us a like, give us those five-star reviews if you think we deserve it, and get a comment on all of our socials. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Dave and myself. We're both, we both have our own personal profiles on LinkedIn, if you uh, so choose, and reach out to us and send us those emails. I do happy dances every time we get email at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. And also shout-outs to all of our proud supporters as well through Anchor. Um, And I will also say this. We also have some other really cool podcasts uh, as well. Uh, You can check me out on the Disney list as well as Dining at Disney. And Dave, I'll hand it back to you.
2: Yeah, and at some point, we're going to do a giveaway of a Claude Coates book uh, signed by myself and Alan Coates. And we'll, we'll be talking about that uh, on some future shows uh, in the next couple of weeks. But uh, in the meantime, peace and love to all of you. Go out, have a fantastic week, and uh, we will see you back here uh, next week on the Skull Rock
1: podcast.
3: well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money
1: where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney
3: they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm Kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan
1: I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband, who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast.
3: Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more.
1: That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.
3: I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Radio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.